we've actually managed to like work our way out of this. And in, now you've introduced this like new occult thing, like the oscillation of the market, which none of you even claim to fully understand. And, and, and now we're subject and now we're subject <laughs> to its fact? whims. And instead of Zeus, like instead of Zeus, it's this fucking thing called the market. You know what I mean? Carl Kotsky, um, Carl the Renegade Kotsky, as it were. Um, we took a look at a text called The Class Struggle that I think was originally written in 1899, um, but was reprinted in English, I think, a little later. And I think the volume that we read was from 1910 and had several editions. Um, and it's basically a, a summation of some of the uh, guiding principles and kind of theoretical background to the Erfurt program, which was the kind of um, founding program of the Social Democratic Party in, in Germany um, in 1891. He was the co-author of it with uh, August Bebel and Edward Bernstein. So if you don't know about Karl Kotsky, he is pretty important and a kind of a pivotal figure in the Marxist tradition. He was kind of widely understood, I, I think, during his ge generational period to sort of be the inheritor of Marx and Engels. Um, I think Engels like commissioned Marxist theories of surplus value into um, translation with Kotsky. So there's a lot of history there, a, a link between the kind of first and second generation of the internationals. Um, Kotsky is kind of the standard figure for the second international. But he also did a lot of theoretical work First, sort of like an outline of a Marxist theory of imperial, imperialism that has recently been revived and, and kind of reevaluated as time has passed. There is a pivotal role that he played in the argument, you know, the famous reformer revolution argument between Bernstein and Rosa Luxemburg. And he argued against the reformists in that debate for a sort of class struggle parliamentarism as opposed to the kind of ethical evolutionary gradualism of Edward Bernstein. And then I think like a lot of the positions that he develops, which I'll say a little bit more about, are, are kind of standard Marxian political positions on immigration, on women, on imperialism, and so on. I think he's became a controversial figure because um, of his political activity during the, the First World War and then um, afterward in the, during the German Revolution. So in the first vote on the war, I think he abstained um, from voting for war credits. So this was widely, widely criticized because he didn't vote against it. For what it's worth, uh, Karl Liebknecht, who's widely known as being the only person to vote against the war, also voted for war credits in the, the first vote. So there's some kind of complicated history there. He broke with the SPD in 1916 or 17, joined the USPD, which is the Independent Social Democratic Party. But he didn't join the Communist Party of, of, of Germany. So there is this kind of implied uh, break between Kotsi and the revolutionary tradition, and people sort of debate, debate about that quite a bit. He served briefly in the revolutionary government of 1918, which was a joint government between the USPD and the SPD. Um, and then in his later writing, and I think this is where he really kind of uh, theoretically became known as like, more of a parliamentarist or a reformist than a revolutionary, however fair, fair that may be, um, or not fair. He's well known for writing Social Democracy versus Communism and a series of anti-Bolshevik uh, polemics. So in the text that we read, however, we focused on the Commonwealth of the Future, which is a central chapter of the class struggle. And I would say that there's a couple interesting things about this text. One obvious line of thought that goes through it is a kind of productive, what is often called productive forces Marxism. So there is a kind of um, 
an argument that the forces of production uh, evolve and then the relations of production become ill-suited to them and then the relations of production are forced to reorganize themselves. And people often call this like a technological determinist or um, mechanical. I think when people say mechanical, that's that might be what they mean idea of history and social development. But then, you know, there's also what I, I call like the, the B-side Kotsky, which is the um, the Kotsky that isn't mechanistic or, or deterministic at all. And if there is the side of him that thinks like the productive forces are evolving and this kind of social change towards socialism is inevitable, he says things that are explicitly to the contrary very often. So like revolution is not inevitable. Or um, there's this phrase where he says the course of events is by no means independent of the individual. And there's like this real emphasis on human agency and education and knowledge. And so I think what's interesting about him is that you can kind of see why he would become a target for like kind of anti-communist or anti-Marxist or anti-whatever polemics in, in the academy. But it also kind of depends, the narrative that Kotsky is like just this mechanical thinker in the second international is just so kind of depends on people not doing their own homework and not reading Kotsky himself. Because there is truth to the the claims about the mechanism of the account of history um, it's it's actually just not just that. And some of the very uh, clearly first articulated arguments about the way socialists should relate to like a modern capitalist state, not an authoritarian state, not a, uh, a state where you have to like be undercover, but a state in which you have to contest for parliamentary power. What's kind of odd about much of the discussion about Kotsky is it's like economic determinism and mechanism and all this. And then like, Apparently, Gramsci is like when we started talking about politics. And, and <laughs> I think when you read Kotsky, you, you realize that's plainly not, not true, that I would say that there's like an initial formulation of what would later become known of like, as like non-reformist reforms, like the point of parliamentary politics, a really emphatic insistence on political rights and democracy as being instrumental for the proletariat. And I also think that there's a number of things like that come come up that are not so emphasized in a lot of the the discussion about Kotsky is that there some of the arguments about expropriation and about women to me seem like surprisingly modern so he he addresses the issue of like what are we going to do with property like what kind of expropriation of private property are we talking about and then he tries to deal with like you know I'm not going to take your car and your house and your TV <laughs> We're, we're going to take the means of production and we're going to socialize them. And, and so there's a, there's a kind of fine tuning of like what people can expect from socialism. You know, he talks about like the accusations that socialists want to abolish the family. And he says something that I think is just very contemporary, which is like, yes and no. Like, yes, we want to ab abolish like the form of family that is like running working class people in the ground and making working class women like work more and not less. And, you know, increases wage competition and so on and so forth but no in the sense that we want some kind of higher form of of family whenever whatever that means and then the last thing I'll say is that there is this real interest in democracy that people I don't know if he gets quite a lot of credit for that which is that you know he argues that like systems of distribution change depending on a population's historical needs and their background institutions like the the kind of historical antecedents that exist in that place. And so there's this surprising awareness almost of the need for people to determine their own fate. And the argument at the end of the day is uh, about freedom and not equality. And I think that this is something recent commentators um, have picked up on, that it's e equality is good insofar as it is measured by living in a free society. And he has a really interesting formula that it's not freedom of labor that he's looking for. It's freedom from labor. And so another really contemporary argument is this kind of um, interest, recent interest in like a kind of post-work ethos or even connecting to our most recent episode that touched on this kind of issue with, with James Boggs is that there's this there's an existing desire to use the forces of production in a way that are going to enhance human freedom. So I'm just going to end my introduction um, with maybe just a, one of the two uh, kind of brief paragraphs, which is, which I think are kind of beautiful at the end of the section where he says, 
Science and art re remain to the proletariat a promised land which it looks at from a distance, which it struggles to possess, but which it cannot enter. Only the triumph of socialism can render accessible to the proletariat all the sources of culture. Only the triumph of socialism can make possible the reduction of the hours of work to such a point that the working man can enjoy leisure enough to acquire adequate knowledge. The capitalist system of production wakens the proletarian's desire for knowledge. The socialist system alone can satisfy it. It is not the freedom of labor, but the freedom from labor, which in a socialist society, the use of machinery makes increasingly possible that will bring to mankind freedom of life, freedom for artistic and intellectual activity, freedom for the noblest enjoyment. And so I, I think you get this kind of uh, idea. Let's go. Yeah. All the snaps. All the this snaps. This kind of rich cultural and scientific world that he sees in the future. And he has some of the same sorts of like anti-blueprint rhetoric that are very common in the Marxist tradition. But you can also see that like he wants to enhance people's lives. Like this idea that like socialism is this kind of like gray world where like everyone has to have the same values and is treated in the same way and is sort of drab and bureaucratic. You can kind of see that in this period of time in the Second International, what was envisioned was a flourishing of art, knowledge, and culture. And I think real like value pluralism that socialism makes possible for the for the first time and, and and I think that's worth thinking about and maybe I've given this presentation in a kind of uh, defensive mode because I think like among academics and among people on the left uh, Kotsky is sort of disliked but I, I I think there's a b-side like I said that we should we should talk about so I'm wondering what you all think yeah I found it excellent I thought it was really first of all extraordinarily clear and sort of clear-sighted there's a real kind of I want to call it like a, I suppose, a realism or, or pragmaticism that I think guides a lot of the ways that he talks about. Like you mentioned, for instance, there's a reckoning with what socialist practice would have to look like under conditions where one of, if not the most powerful economic social institution is the state and the state in its modern form with, you know, liberal parliamentarism as something that progressively takes on more and more economic functions, but only in a circumscribed way that is, you know, in order to secure the conditions of capitalist production. So he talks a little bit about the so-called Manchester School, which was fun because you mm. could just swap out Chicago School yep. for it today. I think we'd mm -hmm. say this sort of free market, like laissez-faire, you know, get the state out of the way of the market. And he's already in whatever, 1899 or what have you, like, no, that's silly. We know that the state's going to be like impressed into the service of taking on the functions of social organization that can't reliably be left to the market, right? Capitalism left to its own devices is a socially disintegrating force. And so things that can't be rendered like productive as enterprises, the state's going to need to regulate and manage these things. And in fact, I think we've seen like, you know, what the disastrous results are of privatizing things like education or transportation infrastructure here in the, you know, 21st century. But this also looks very different than what, what does, what does socialist practice look like in Russia, like in the early 20th century? Yeah, it might be insurrectionary, but that's like an autocratic and agrarian society with a different state form. And he mm. thinks for very pragmatic reasons, you know, trying to do an insurrection when people, uh, working people, are committed to some ideas of parliamentary liberal democracy is like a non-starter, but also mm. that that's just like not practically an effective way of going about things. So for this reason, he advocates for, you know, the formation of a socialist party that seeks to seize state power through official channels. There's a kind of, uh, I guess we'd call it electoralism, I suppose, but like one that's geared toward revolutionary ends. And I think this is an interesting perspective that doesn't get a lot of play these days. I think most leftists are just automatically s skeptical or suspicious of anything that looks like electoral politics. But I don't know. I think he might be onto something 
What do you what do you I'm think? glad that we're starting there because um I read um I, I forget where it was, but Lillian, it was one of the pages you suggested us as you know kind of extra reading. And I highlighted it because one of the at least he says one of the uh, sort of instrumental rather than maybe intrinsic is one of the instrumental goods of parliamentarianism for, for Kotsky is that the development of a working party that succeeds in winning elections and shaping policy is not only good that shapes policy, but it gives working people the taste of, of hope and success. And sometimes, you know, um, I feel like in contemporary conversations, I get, um, you know, the beef with the Democratic Party because one might see that actually the Democratic Party, what it's geared towards is producing despair and disappointment. But, you know, <laughs> what I think Kotsky gets really right about politics is, you know, one cannot forge through, in, you know, in a mode of despair, nihilism and resignation for long. That's actually really important for talking about real, actually existing everyday people to be able to fall in love with success, to be able to see the fruits of whatever it is that you are doing. Now, when you're working in theory, it's you know, it's very easy to be like, oh, you don't know like in the long term what you're going to do. But politics here and now, what the, I think he thinks you know, the the purpose of a political party is so that people can start to see practically, I do have agency in this world when I cooperate with other people. And so what I found was actually also what you were saying, Gil, is that sometimes I, I think it is forgotten that also the form politics takes will always have to be responsive to the, the relevant forces that shape the moment that we are in. So like when you were talking, I all of a sudden found myself being like, I don't know how helpful it is to look at a completely different historical situation and say, why can't we do that? So more right. like maybe modern examples, you know, you know sometimes little people will look at like, you know, anti colonial struggles in, in the 60s and be like, why can't we just do guerrilla warfare? And I'm like, well, I think there's some relevant differences, you know, you know fighting in Algeria when, uh, than fighting in Detroit. You know, I, I know it might, be, it might be sexy to say they're the exact same, but I don't think that they are. And so it's like Kotsky's registering that and saying, so what is actually the socialist practice of politics that allows people to experience that hope and taste of success? And that seems to me rather reasonable. Yeah, I, th I think that actually helps make sense of the kind of determinant, the mechanical determinism thing that you were mentioning in the beginning, Lillian. There, there's a tension between, or what seems sometimes like a tension between a certain notion of like economic determinism at work in Kautsky and then an insistence on like the unpredictability of the future, mm -hmm. the fact that it's not all guaranteed to turn out in a kind of revolutionary direction, right? He says that at one point, like, you know, all these terrible things I'm describing about the current system don't necessarily need to like lead to revolutionary improvement. Uh, it's perfectly possible that we just descend into barbarism. Right? <laughs> and so like, it's not, nothing's yeah. guaranteed. But I think like what's what's uh, what's helpful about what you're saying there, Will. It, it seems to me that he 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 wants to lay out a notion of historical transformation that is like moored in like has moorings in very strong moorings in social transformations and in you know the advancement of like economic transformations, without tying it in a kind of deterministic way to those those transformations and those processes. Now, I don't know, like I go, I was, was going back and forth with how successfully he carries that out. Um, mm -hmm. But I think the place where you see that the most clearly is when he's trying to distinguish the utopian socialists from the kind of socialism that he is advocating for and along with others um, uh, at the time. You know, he says the issue with the utopian socialists is that they had no choice but to like try to sketch out blueprints and to try to make, he uses the word like these almost like you want to salivate at this like picture they're portraying of like this future perfect society because they were not moored in a historical process in which it looks like it looked like those things could, you know, it was tangible to people that those things might like big changes were on the horizon. Mm -hmm. Whereas in at the end of the 19th century, everybody knows that like, we are undergoing like massive transformations and you don't have to rely because you are moored in history at that, at that, like at that historical moment, you don't have to like do the kind of totally imaginary yeah. blueprint creation of, you know, this is what the future society is going to look like. So I don't know, maybe that's a little bit unclear, but I think that that's the, the tension between trying to stay moored in history without being determined by it. Uh, yeah. 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 I think I can like add to that a little bit. There's like two things I wanted to say about that. One is that like the sense in which there's something unavoidable historically that he's describing, I think 
is misunderstood if we take him to be articulating like a philosophy of history where like socialism or communism is inevitable. He clearly doesn't think that. He does think though that like what's inevitable is the alternative socialism or barbarism, I think mm. is how I'd put it, mm -hmm. right? That like mm -hmm. the internal contradictions of capitalist production in the course of its historical development are such that it's unsustainable in the long term. And that like either, like he says repeatedly things like, look, the choice that's open to uh, the working class when faced with the sort of, yeah, the sort of intrinsic contradictions. I know you keep asking us what contradictions are, Lillian, and I still don't know, but I could, you know, I think just kind of in a, in a general sense is either to like go down along, like go down with the ship or to try to institute a socialist mode of production, which would involve the abolition of private property of the means of production. And like, I think... I feel like that's right. <laughs> I feel mm, like that. You, yeah, like I, I think that, like, that those are the options. I think so, to this day, I feel like that's true. This isn't a teleological picture, but it's one that I think yeah. takes tendencies, historical tendencies, seriously. And and sure, sure enough, looking around 2022, it does not feel to me like ca capitalism is long term sustainable. I'll just want to say just quickly credit to his sense of historical tendencies. There's one point where he's talking about like Europe's you know desire for territorial expansion. And European nations. Oh my God! Or I, this was amazing. Like. This is only going. This is only can can only go one of two places. Um, he says it can either go towards a massive cataclysmic war between the European nations, one which like destroys existing nations and creates new ones. Oh, that's well. interesting. <laughs> uh, or it or it ends up in a federation of all European countries together. Hmm. And I think, damn it. He was, he was right yeah, you, three times yeah, on that yeah, score. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. you know what? That's three, that's three times more than the average person. So I'm willing to give him that. I, I am wrong <laughs> more times a day than he was right. He's got some so historical sense. Yeah. I get that. And so the other thing I, I, I wanted to say, because I, I, I am always struggling with this inevitability question. I was just in a reading group when we were talking about it. And so I think there's a difference between saying, and this is kind of building up what Gil was saying, that what's inevitable is this you know positive outcome so the positive outcome would be something like socialism instead you know he's making a negative argument what's inevitable is that capitalism cannot survive forever but that right. doesn't actually necessarily say what will what will obviously happen afterwards or what will take its place instead you know the argument is uh, something along the lines of and sometimes like his language is really strange here what are we going to do with the knowledge that we have of the way the economic process is going? So he's very clear, socialism builds on an already ongoing economic process. Mm -hmm. It doesn't substitute, it doesn't invent out of thin air a new economic process. And so, you know, you either go in that direction or this economic process is going to dissolve capitalism as a social form and you might not like what life looks like <laughs> when there is no social form to replace it. And I think uh -huh. that that actually, um, you know, that brings down the threshold of what the argument is. Because, I mean, honestly, it's fair. If someone were to ask, you're saying it's inevitable that will be, there will be communism, so we don't need to worry about the whole education part. And then someone could say, oh, no, 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 the workers will naturally be educated. Like, so we don't need to actually try for it. <laughs> no, 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 something, something productive forces. And you can s see how to many people that just seems like really implausible. But if you're making the argument that given <laughs> what we understand these dynamics, that they will buckle under their own pressure pressure. That is a very different type of argument that doesn't necessarily say politics has no place. In fact, it says politics needs to have a place given what these economic forces are tending to do. Yeah, I think, yeah. I, I think that's a really smart set of things you all just said. I, I hadn't really thought of it that way. That Thank what's you. inevitable is that... <laughs> Is that that kind of choice that continues to present itself? And I, and I wonder if... In the context that he's writing, you know, like this is simultaneously like theoretical and sort of explanatory. Like the the text we read is the eighth edition, I think, and it was published by. Um, and I think if people know this text, like there's a little brown version that we read, and it's um, it's it's the size of a pocket. Like it's meant to fit in a worker's pocket. That's mm -hmm. why it's the size it is. Um, so like. I'll show it to you guys. Like, oh, oh that's cute. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tiny, cute little thing. Yeah, and so Very aesthetic. It's, it's published by this kind of publisher in, in Chicago. And then you can, see it, you can see that there's a stamp on it. It says Labor Action Book Service, 114 West 14th Street, New York. So, like, I think, you know, there's an audience for this. And, if I, and I wonder if some of the, 
the more you know socialism is an, is the inevitable outcome language is rhetorical in a, in a significant way where like if you know what's needed is for people to have a sense of their own agency then you want to make them have a sense of their own agency that like they're mm-hmm, so those kind mm-hmm. of obvious contradictions in the text where it's like if the perfor- productive mm. forces do things why do we need to do anything like <laughs> the the more obvious response is like maybe he just never even thought that like maybe he knows that's a contradiction and that's <laughs> kind of besides the mm-hmm. the rhetorical point because he's not a dummy you know like there's a <laughs> imagine <yeah. laughs> i mean you know like maybe there's like a kind of different argument but I, I, I do think that that's right, though, that like we continue to be faced with these alternatives. And I, I think that another interesting like line of thought is like what inevitability entails for like global economic development, because something that um, the Second International is often criticized for, and maybe Marxists generally, is like kind of accepting economic capitalist development on a global stage. So Marxists are often interpreted as sort of like aligning themselves with a liberal modernization thesis, you know, that like the moral, there's moral ambivalence about the development of capitalism. And in some sense, this is kind of imperialist. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it's much, I think that on the one hand, this is not a fair criticism for, because I think that the ambivalence applies within Europe itself. I don't think it's like a civilizational discourse where like these backward people need to become capitalist. I think there's a, this acknowledgement of the brutality of capitalist development in the global north in that like a recognition that that that, that process is somehow inevitable and that there is no turning back the clock. So in some ways, like the moral question of what to do with capitalism in places that are not yet capitalist, I think... I think for Kotsky, that's like a moot question. It's like, they're just going to be like, that's what's happening. And I think that put that is a complicated thing to say, because when people resist that, as they did in Europe, as they have all over the world, is resisting the transition itself, it kind of at kind of odds with the socialist vision. But on the other hand, it's 2022. And there just isn't anywhere in the globe that isn't capitalist, like the places that aren't are very insignificant to like the global economy politics little kind of reservoirs of of sociality that and so i always wonder like what is the point of asking this like kind of making that that challenge because it is true that it was inevitable in a sense like those economic like once england developed those kind of price pressures and started like having exports like germany and france couldn't continue to not be capitalist and that happened they didn't have the, a chance they didn't have a chance yeah. and it and it happened the world over, you know, and so I, I wonder about those moral questions inside that claim, because it also does kind of just strike me as, as true that it was inevitable in, in a way. Yeah, I mean, so like when you're saying that, I mean, I don't know why I'm seeing this for the first time. So something like, you know, the sort of um, the critique of utopianism is moralistic is, you know, a critique rooted in the idea that, you know, if you're a utopian who thinks something like the point of politics is to make it so that capitalism, you know, doesn't win, whatever that means, doesn't become global, then you're you're very much not rooted in social reality because where we are standing now, actually, those economic you know, pressures and processes, they have won out. That's not, that's not quite up for moral debate. It's only up for moral debate insofar as, I guess, you could adjudicate whether it does bad or good things. But that says nothing right. about the direction yeah. it will go. Um, obviously, you know, Newsflash, that's not my version of utopianism, but I see that that is, <laughs> that is the critique. And so, you know, when you're talking, when you're like, you know, saying, Lillian, that, you know, there actually aren't major places that are quote unquote anti-capitalist or non-capitalist that are affecting the global economy, it seems as if, you know, politics has to face that reality. And so it's not simply about being abstractly against capitalism, whatever that might mean. It is, you know, given what we understand of these pressures and these forces, how can we, you know, shift what track these forces are going to go on? So there is no leaping back and saying, actually, can we actually have not done the capitalism thing? Let's just like do, let's start with the socialist mode of production rather than going through all this nightmare business. But, you know, that's just not, it's not realistic. It's not political. But, you know, I don't know, for some reason when you said it, you know, I, I don't want this to sound dire. In a way, capitalism did win. 
we aren't yes, at that like big hinge time. moment where it's just like I I wonder if capitalism is actually going to go big or not. No, <laughs> honey, he's gone big. He blew up. And so what do we do with that? Yeah. Yeah, this is great. There's a couple of points I'd like to make here. So like he says, you know, like you said, he's got his critique of the like the other the earlier utopian socialists. And there's a really interesting thing that he says at some point, right? In his critique of I want to call it like planism or maybe pro programmaticism or whatever. One of the charges against socialists is always like, yeah, but you're not like, you haven't worked out the plan yet. You haven't told us exactly what socialism is going to look like. And he's like, you don't need to do that. It's a mistake to try to do that, right? Like this is an error because you're not going to be able to predict the shape of future things. But what you can do as an intellectual or someone who's trying to be like a student of history or a student of political economy is try to discern tendencies, is try to discern tendencies. And he says that, you know, I think this is a good historical materialist claim that for whatever, tens of thousands of years, maybe, the processes of social development moved very slowly, maybe imperceptibly, if that, if at all, for how long was like, you know, human beings living in these like, you know, pre-modern um, forms of social organization. And then starting really, I don't know, in the 1500s, it speeds up pretty, pretty quickly and pretty rapidly. We start seeing, you know, intense evolutions of social forms and development of capitalism. Then we get the bourgeois revolution so that it is possible then for maybe the first time historically to try to become aware of these like laws of social development or evolution. The first attempts at which are the classical political economists. And then they've, you know, maybe they've got some baggage, right? They're still thinking about human nature in some ways that we're going to jettison, good materialists that we are. And with Marx, we'll develop an even deeper kind of analysis. But understanding the tendencies that are imminent in the present moment by like looking at the historical conditions in the process of development gives us a, a clue for what needs to happen in order for the relapse to barbarism to be inevitable, right? <laughs> and in this regard, it seems to me, at least in this text, right? I don't know. I don't know about the Kautsky, so I'm just working off what's going on here. But for, for, for Kautsky in this text, he seems to more than anything else insist on the way that capitalism in its process of development tends to replace small scale production with large scale production. Right. That like the most significant thing for him seems to be what, you know, Marx calls like the concentration of capital, whereby like smaller forms of organizing um, labor in, in cooperation are progressively replaced by bigger and bigger cooperative forms. I was thinking when I was reading this about how prescient it was, it like anticipates a lot of the claims that people like Paul Baran and, and Sweezy are going to write like 80 years, 70, 70 years later in monopoly capital and trying to develop a theory of like, what, is, what does it look like when you get this monopolistic stuff? And so he says like, look, for the longest time, social organization for satisfying social needs was the norm. Now with the you know, bourgeois society, we've got individual needs and individual ownership and individually owned production. It's like, that's not the norm historically, but the call for socialism isn't like, let's return to ancient communism. <laughs> Because we have to depart from the present. And departing from the present means looking at this tendency towards large-scale production. So for him, socialism and socialist production is what happens when we have an institution of collective ownership of means of production now on the basis of large-scale organization, now no longer on the basis of these small kind of little pockets of, of production, which changes the game quite considerably i think and and again like this is what i think is going on in a in the, like i said a very realist historical materialist analysis of tendencies uh he thinks to put it into terms that you two were just using in the conversation you two were just uh, having like you can't turn back the clock of the large-scale organization of production and that mm -hmm. changes what we have to understand by the possibilities of socialism yeah i was just gonna say listening to you sometimes you know I hear people, and I think that sometimes people forget that they are so-called conservative, but, you know, maybe I don't want to use this pejorative, but reactionary critiques of capitalism, you know, that, yeah. you know, are premised on the idea of, you know, why can't we get back to a time when social relations are more translucent, smaller, where the, the community didn't seem like it was so buffeted by social forces. And I think that's important to say, because sometimes I think if you don't realize 
realize that. You might think any critique of capitalism is obviously, you know, a sort of progressive critique that is about expanding what what Lillian has called, you know, um, value pluralism. And, you know, and so what you're saying there, Gil, is that, you know, part of being realistic is understanding that there's no turning back the clock. And on, on, on the other hand, it also means saying something like, I guess, again, you all are saying things, I guess I've never thought about this way, but has there ever been a moment in human history where the macro relation, economic relations that really shape human life have been so available for human knowledge to pick through. So all at once, I always joke, like, capitalism is so goddamn complex. Like, I can't tell you what's going on in the market. And yet, when I think back to before we had all of this knowledge, I imagine most people, shit just happened. And you just had to, like, come up with wild metaphysics. You know, no shade, Gil. (laughs) Wild metaphysics for why that was. And so that makes me think, should our political thinking, political philosophy also be different given that we are in a different place where it comes to having the capacity to understand such large, complex macro forces as compared to, say, Plato. You know, you know would, would Plato <laughs> be able to write the Republic now? And I, I don't mean that just as a silly question, but it seems to me this is a real philosophical and political difference that, you know, Kotsky is saying the, the economic forces are now laid bare for us in a manner in which they were not in a pre-capitalist era. Am am I getting that right? Does that make sense? That that makes sense to me. Yeah, and like there's, I think there's something really important in what you're saying because if you take that as like a starting point that like we can actually know ourselves and our world much better than we ever could before. And you don't need like some strong idea of reason and self-transparency to say that. It's just like we're able to study ourselves, you know, like our our behavior, Mm -hmm. you know, even if I don't know my unconscious, I can see macrodynamic trends. We can model it statistically. We can do all kinds of things that like just were not done before, you know, capitalism emerges across, you know, across the world. Like and there are places we have better and worse data about you know like there's there's different there's imbalances and like how we know and uh blind spots that we have and kind of filling in that we do that's very presumptuous and so on but it's still just like qualitatively different the kind of knowledge that we do in fact have about ourselves and like how we exist together like modern sociology begins with capitalism you know like Durkheim and Weber and Marx like that's what it's studying Um, and it emerges in Western Europe in that way because they had this thing to study you know it's not because they were special it was just like they were in a position to be like holy shit you know something is going on here and I, I, I think that's important because there are two different things two different tendencies that 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 should put some, I think, cast into doubt. Like the idea that all critiques of capitalism are, I think, progressive in the way that Will is saying, because there's certainly a conservative one, like a capital C conservative one, which is like usually the same version that like resists like the French Revolution and shit, you know, the kind of one that's mm-hmm. like just opposed to modern liberalism and just like yeah, yeah. fully fully reactionary. Like This whole capitalism. rights thing was a mistake. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, this, this exists. Um, and then there's just like more, like more, like less hard hitting versions of that. A lot of conservative hostility to like globalism is like this, um, and sometimes is like capital C conservatism. But then I think there's also just like tendencies on like the the nominal left. Like when pe- whenever people try to just like resist modernity or like you know the people mm-hmm. who are like living righteously are always like across the world in some place I've never seen and people I don't know because they're like external to the system. Like this kind of stuff is like very attractive to people who are like otherwise progressively minded and they're like yeah. morals, you know? Yeah. So like it's white folks in Costa Rica. Yeah. Yeah. This like <laughs> looking this, for their I mean, noble stuff, savage. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this yeah, the noble savage thing. And and I think that the idea that like we have we have enough knowledge to not to know that we can't go back is kind of an interesting social position to be in, period. Just just building on what you guys are saying here, I, it's really interesting to me the way that he his critique of like political parties that exist at his moment, I think it's obviously equally true of political parties uh, you know, in the current conjuncture, uh, is that they don't, like they're not interested in like, ep- like sufficiently 
epistemically and practically coming to grips with the the current moment and with where things are heading in the future. He mm. accuses like current political parties of having like a presentism yeah. where they're, they're incapable of seeing and like they don't, they're not interested in coming to grips with like long-term tendencies with like, you know, where uh, we might be heading in the future, how to give that, even if you can't ultimately alter those historical and economic tendencies that are at work to give them a certain impetus in a certain direction to have some control over to exercise some power over like the direction that we're heading and so like yeah far from like you know there's the critique of nostalgia and then there's like the critique of the presentism that like technocratic managerial politics has like even at the end of the 19th century which it is also not interested in again like epistemically and practically coming to grips with all of these resources you guys just described with like what are the forces that we are subjected to that we operate under what how could we exercise agency over those forces and towards what ends and that's just not like a like <laughs> yeah. a something that any political you know any of your kind of technocratic managerial political parties have any interest in whatsoever right? so it's not just the nostalgics yeah. it's also the presentists i had the same reaction to that section i thought it was so good like there's a bit where he's like people are always complaining that the socialist party doesn't like have a clear aim and he's like that's bananas it's the only political party with a clear <laughs> aim he's the only one that actually has a goal and like he's like by by contrast like you know you know, what's the aim? What are the aims, the long term goals of like the Democrats or the Republicans here in the US? Like, I don't know, just for like to manage the status quo for a no, little it's longer. Like, patch like, things up and keep it afloat. Yeah, there's a quote where he <laughs> writes, uh, he's describing again, like, the, you know, the other political parties than the Socialist Party and, you know, the context of his own writing, again, 120 years ago. But he goes, what do they do? They, they quote, they hold to the existing order, although they all see that it is untenable and unendurable. <laughs> Their yeah. programs contain nothing except a few little patches by which they hope and promise to make the untenable tenable and the unendurable endurable. And I was just mm. like, oh, that's the motto of the Democratic Party. One thousand yeah. percent. Yeah. Yeah. Life sucks. <laughs> Maybe it won't later. Later? Maybe <laughs> we'll work yeah. on it. But God, just there's a name. Socialism yeah, has a, like has a also, goal. The, the technocratic managerial party structure also has a way of you know, making something called the economy or the market just as anonymous force that, that we all answer to. So I think there's also something different in you know, saying economic forces have these tendencies then you know what I think is not great, mystifying them and saying, well, all politics can do is simply respond to the signals that this thing called the economy, you know, tells us that we need to do. The which oscillations is of the market. Yeah, yeah, it, it's That's just so funny that. that you know the Democratic Party often says always sounds like middle management, like, hey, even I've got a boss. What can you do? And you know, and so it's like Hotsky is saying, um, you know Who's what? Your boss? If for no other, <laughs> yeah, the Democrat Party, it's either the Supreme Court, the market, the economy, and honestly, for some of them, the Republicans. It's really yeah. wild that you think yeah. your political opposition is also your boss, but I'm not here to tell you to do your business. I've never been elected oh, to office, so I guess oh, I don't man. get it. And so it's like Hotsky saying, we sure like, know you they should don't be... care what you have to say about it either. So we're all yeah. good. exactly yeah. middle management. We're Dis mutually disdainful of, our, of the other office desires. space. Yeah. Yo, yo, it'd be really great if you came in on Saturday. <laughs> oh, I have plans. Mm, it'd be really mm, great if you really came in on Saturday. <laughs> yeah, I think it's funny how he says like because they're always reacting to like the forces of the market and the way that they that like the bourgeois state governs is that you're beholden to like these fluctuations and oscillations in the market. He's like, listen, you know we got a chance to basically do away with at least some of the destruction wrought by the contingencies of nature, right? Like droughts and all these different, you know, yeah. insufficient technology for good crop yields and all of this stuff, right? We, we've actually managed to like work our way out of this. And in, now you've introduced this like new occult thing, like the oscillation of the market, which none of you even claim to fully understand. And, and, and now we're subject, and now we're subject to its that? whims. And instead of Zeus, like instead of Zeus, it's this fucking thing called the market. You know what I mean? And he's like, what a, what a waste of this advancement yeah, what a that waste. we, that we just now have to be like slaves again to this. Like, I guess sometimes there is going back for these political parties. <laughs> like, I'm dying yeah. instead of Zeus. It's the That's market. That's really good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's just like, you know, it's a really basic Marxian insight that like, you know, the, the sort of way in which capitalism reorganizes social production in an increasingly scientific, productive way, the possible 
salutary effects that that might have on like the working class are just annulled by the fact that these new the means of the means of improving the productivity of labor right which we get in in capital one you have the sort of economies of scale of increasingly large scale production an increasing technical division of labor and the implementation of machinery right these are all basically implemented everywhere right in all in all industrial sectors but why because for capitalism you have to fucking beat out your competition and you're trying to increase the rate of surplus value but like what if production wasn't geared around surplus value what as he says if instead we had production for utility for like actually satisfying needs and like those same means of altering the production process could be used in an enlarged way to like make the needs of of everyone just like a met thing just like done done at the same time that like the hours that you'd have to work could be effectively reduced almost to zero like i like <laughs> that you brought up the bogs uh lillian because there was like there's like an anticipation of the automation thesis here right he's like <laughs> look capital's already replacing your work with like, with machinery like lean in but use the products of labor <laughs> to solve problems instead of just like immiserating ever greater portions of the working class right i love this Lean in, but don't lean into more workplace. Lean yes. into not having to go to work for most exactly. of your life. Exactly. But insofar as, you know, essentially access to the means of subsistence continues to be mediated through a wage that you get only by selling your labor. Yeah, the implementation of all of these techniques of improving the, the production process just mean ever greater immiseration, right? And again, it's a really basic Marxian insight. The general formula for capital is MCM prime. And like that M prime means shit to me and most humans on the earth, right? It's nothing. Mm -hmm. It's nothing I'm really happy whenever Elon Musk somehow gets a return on whatever it is <laughs> that he does. I feel that. You know, yeah, he, he's, love that he's like him. me, for real, for real. And <laughs> what you were saying also builds on, I actually also love what Kotsky had to say about the family form, because also what you're saying there, Gil, is something that gets thrown at socialists or, you know, I guess in the present day, so-called radicals or whatever. It's like, oh, so you mean that we should just com become completely not human? The world that you're talking about is a world yes. in which, you know, we don't have fathers and mothers anymore. No more we're all just communal lives. Yeah. yeah. And I can just kidnap other people's children because they're mine the anyway. Kidnapping children. Yeah. They belong to me. But, but <laughs> when you look at present day Don't society. Clip that out of context, reactionaries. <laughs> but they will. Um, no, no. But you know, what Kotsky is also saying is all those things that you're worried about, about the dissolution of the family form, that's already happening. Yeah, what do you yeah, think yeah. it yeah. means where you have to increasingly spend time away from home, increasingly <laughs> worried about whether you can feed your children? And divorce rates finding... among working people are higher than they've ever been. And like women are not having babies or like getting married because there's no point. Or they can't like sure I'm seems like capitalism's destroying the family i don't <laughs> i can promise <laughs> you yeah, socialism did didn't do that like and the one, yeah yeah and the ones that can afford it like it's just all like childcare and night nurses you have yeah. no time for them like you <laughs> the know family. I, I just i just rules the know, family. i just uh, the real family yeah. I, just had, I just had a kid i'd love like the luxury of doing like a couple years of just like family form shit for a bit but it's not an option like <laughs> capitalism capitalism has destroyed the fucking even the option of, of family so so what are we holding on to this thing for again right. i get it it's here and i'm able to get ipads that's that's awesome but I you, like know, I, you know, sometimes it's like it just feels just be a little cycling. Like, feels like there's a little projection going on where you're saying, like, well, under well, capitalism, yeah, yeah, you're going to be, you know, bored, emiserated, yeah. have your know, <laughs> fragile social relationships. And, hmm. I just Separated watched the same family. version of reality TV show on Netflix. I don't know where I'm going to live next year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Did socialism do that to me? <laughs> I feel like it wasn't socialism. Well, he makes the same argument um, in response to the charge. He's like, all right, we got all these. There's also a really interesting discussion, which I don't know if we'll have time to get into, about like uh, being against discussions about distribution. Where, again, very classical Marxian point, read the critique of the Gotha program, where he's like, look, if you think that like socialism just means like leaving the mode of production intact and distributing better, you missed the point, right? Like Marx argues pretty clearly, and, and Kautsky like, just picks this up and runs with it, that the mode of distribution is dependent on con conditioned by the mode of production, which has got a kind of primacy. So he's like, you know, you can think about how we'll distribute wealth after like we establish a socialist mode of production, but like 
kind of why they're like we'll, we'll see what it looks like um, why are we why are you putting the cart before the horse why are you putting the cart behind before the horse but the other the other argument I, I wanted to bring up that he makes uh that's got like the same basic form or structure as what you were just saying about the family um is like you know sometimes you got critics of socialism who say something like the following they go Sure, maybe if we organize society in a socialist way, that would be better for the majority of working people. We'd meet more of their needs, but at what cost? At the cost of economic freedom, right? Yeah, they would yeah. no longer, they'd be, and you know, oh, like, you know, and the analogy he gives is great, right? Like, maybe that bird in the cage is fed, but it's because it's in a cage. And is that what you want for the working class? Like, that would suck. And he makes the same exact argument about the, this economic freedom that he did with the dissolution of the family. He's like, yeah, in large scale production, uh, you already don't have economic freedom. And again, capitalism did that. Like at most yeah. you have the freedom to like choose which master you have, which great, congratulations. You can quit your job and get a new boss. So what? It's freedom from economic labor. That's the point. And it, it's already, if you're really worried about losing economic freedom, like kind of bad news, capital already <laughs> yeah. saw to that. Right? Like, have I got yeah. an economic system to describe to you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that what's striking about the text is just how, how um, in a way, like we would just use different language and stuff, but like how contemporary this is. Like, what does the right say now? We, you want to take away our economic freedom. You want to abolish the family. You want to do all of this. Like, mm-hmm. and you know, and and I think it's a really interesting <laughs> rhetorical strategy that we rarely try these days, which is just like, no, no, no. These problems that are afflicting you are not my fault because. Yeah. Socialism isn't here, you know, and that's it's a I'm, hypothetical future. I'm not yeah, in power. Not, Why are you on me? <laughs> yeah, so like there's a there's something about turning around like, oh, it's interesting that you're worried about that. Look at the decimation of working class families, like what women have to do to survive, you know, involuntary forms of sex work or you know having to come home and just do more work after you do one kind of work and like yeah, you know. Like just whatever, man. Like there's, he has all these examples of like I can't think of them now of like the things that are terrible for working class women in this way and like in this society. And then he's like, yeah, but like socialism didn't do that to them. Yeah. Who did that to them? <laughs> like, that? Wait, who did sweetie, that? sweetie, that wasn't socialism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Honey, no. And no. I don't feel like we really use that rhetorical strategy like super at all anymore like we, we're kind of like no we don't or like yes we do but like obviously <laughs> the the answer is things are really bad and capitalism did that so it doesn't matter yeah. whether or not we want to like mm-hmm. what kind of families we want whatever we're going to do is going to be better than this because look at what is happening right now and look at this, this is terrible. Yeah, yeah you know and, and i do think that that is like a much better response than like mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Lean into it. We want to abolish the family or like, you know, and if if that is like what you want, I'm not like criticizing that. But I just I mean, as an argumentative strategy, like just saying yes or no, it's not us. We're not the ones who want to do that. Like neither of these things are satisfactory because none of it points Mm -hmm. out like actually the problem here is that capitalism harms women and families and we want to stop doing that, you know. Mm-hmm. And that that also just sounds way more principled than saying in my <laughs> ideal world. And I'm just like, right. I don't want to conjure it up again, but I'm also remembering restaurant discourse when that oh, invaded yeah. Twitter. I'm just like restaurant what? discourse was what? lit. Oh, what, 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 are we, what are we doing here except again trying to be managers and saying uh, uh, uh. For listeners in the future, for listeners in the future who weren't on Twitter like a few months ago, who have no idea what we're talking about, there was a whole series of arguments that people were having about whether or not there would be restaurants in socialist society and the whole of leftist twitter just tore themselves to pieces trying to figure out the way to answer that question which is like i don't know man what are we doing yeah anybody who wants restaurants has never worked in the service industry and like you know yeah Wait, it, it got really serious yeah yeah, yeah this yeah. was a big, yeah, it's a big I mean, sometimes you live you live such a blessed life you don't get to see what the online left does to itself it's a it's really <laughs> incredible and it's all public it's all free yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it's all free. <laughs> I, do. I have like configured my algorithm where like I I get glimpses of it. Like I saw a friend tweet about restaurants, so like I did know it was happening, but I don't see enough of it to know like really what's happening. 
Well, you're really missing out because it was cutting edge socialist discourse. Let me tell you, we had on the one hand, we had like on the one hand, like bourgeois defenders of private property who like restaurants. And then on the other hand, like radical, like, you know, decolonial, like revolutionaries who wanted to eliminate all forms of restaurateur and entrepreneurial. It was awesome. That, that was started so to tend towards, guess what? Under socialism, life sucks, but at least we're good people. I'm like, huh, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, I don't know who you won with that, but um, cool. <laughs> I love I love just like the maximally alienating approach to politics, you know, like some people would come on and be like, so wait, under socialism, is it cool if I cook for my friend? Like, like, no, that's an alienation of your labor. And, like, and I'm like, we're fucking doomed. You know? <laughs> wait, did someone say no, you're not allowed? Oh, yeah. Someone was like, well, it depends on the conditions of the labor and all like, oh, it's just like so sick. oh yeah, so no, tight. I actually had like you know, a long, you know, dark night of the soul in that moment. Like, I, I don't think we're going to make it. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, I mean, like, again, like, you know, this is why I love that we like this is a good moment for a little Kautskian wisdom, right? Like, stop planning for what, like, socialist food production is going to look like and look at the tendencies of the present. Can we please return to a little bit of realist analysis instead of imagining, like, oh, in communism, like, maybe food's going to look like this or that. And it's like, you don't know what you're talking about. Let's relax. That's to be figured out. Just, like, I I love that moment where he's like, and as far as confiscating confiscating people's property, I mean, that's, like, don't worry about that. Like, that's to be figured out in the future. (laughs) And some people are like, I'm pretty worried about that. Can you let me know whether that's... Can you let me know whether that's... That's going to be a thing. Like, I'm, I'm petit bourgeois, like, you know, shop owner. Like, I'm just trying to figure out, am I getting expropriated on the system? <laughs> Is he talking about me? But, no, and once but, again, he's like, oh, are you a small business owner? Uh, hold, good luck holding on to your small production well, because capital. Right, he again, makes the same point there where yeah. he says it's not socialists that are ruining small production. Yeah. That's already been getting it's ruined. It's happening and it's capitalism, baby. Yeah, his way out of the argument with, like, the small... That's true. I didn't realize that. His way out of the argument with the small business owner reactionaries is just is the same as the one with the family and all of this it's just like we're not that's not our problem capitalism is doing that <laughs> yeah. capitalism is doing that to you anyway bucko yeah yeah, yeah basically Amazon, right? you've that's- got bigger problems than what socialism's yeah. gonna do <laughs> yeah our thing is we would like to like reorganize production so that you could survive whereas your large franchise zoning competitors want you to die in, in the poverty on the street so yeah walmart you know, really wants that. you to go under that's its yeah. <laughs> Walmart they, wants to take they, you they down. They would love it if you did. <laughs> yeah. So here's kind of an interesting paragraph that I, I found while you we were talking about tendencies. So he's talking about um, whether or not you should care about like equality of incomes, which is another thing that he mm. doesn't really think is that important. Like he thinks that. Um, Something else is important, and I actually didn't quite understand this part, but he said, this change in the tendency of incomes is, in the eyes of socialists, of more importance than the absolute increase of incomes. So what he's talking about is like um, the tendency of incomes to diverge and differentiate and low wages to become depressed or, or whatever. This is more important than like what like capitalist apologetics usually say is like we're going to raise the floor of the bottom and even if you have so much wealth inequality up here at least everyone is just less shit poor than they were relative to 500 <laughs> years ago or something like this. Right. Um, Rising tide lifts all boats. Love it. Yeah. So his so point he's, he's like he's like this is not really what's important it's the tendency of of the incomes that exist and he's like the thoughtful man lives more in the future than in the present what the future threatens or promises preoccupies him more than the enjoyment of the present um not what is but will what will be not existing conditions but tendencies determine the happiness both of individuals and of whole states i feel like he has this like whole process eudaimonism going on where he's like we like happiness is is a is a is a process that like we are real we are attaining virtue through like understanding the tendencies of our appetites and so on and what we need to do mm. is like get it all in order or, what, or maybe that's epicureanism i don't know something like that i feel like there's kind of what a there's like a meta theory there of like the focus has to be on the process because what we need to do is like put it at the energies in the right channels and it's yeah. not about yeah. the yeah, just after that he's just after that he's like look if you look at any little islands of uh, of communism in america or in france wherever they existed look at the equanimity the tranquility 
Like the mm. and he starts using all these like almost I don't know, yeah kind of like eth- like virtue ethics like kind of language yeah um, yeah and uh, and it, and it a lot of it he says derives from the fact that you are not no longer subject to those uncertainties right to the whims mm. of well I was saying like Zeus or whatever <laughs> but it's not to the whims of uh, you know the oscillations of the market or freedom yeah I love that and you know yeah. and I, I will just say also what I kind of got from the equality of income part is also trying to debate that is already assuming that. A certain problem that we're trying to solve now will still be existent right. in this new new world. And so it's as if saying something along the lines of, but okay, how will we preserve or or abolish you know, uh, competition on the wage I have in order to reproduce myself? And what we don't know is if it is true that we're able to transform the mode of production, will that still be a salient political question? I right. think a way of arguing against socialism is to assume that these questions are eternal and say that social can answer mm-hmm. these eternal questions, but it seems Kotsky's saying, I don't think that those are eternal, ahistorical, political problems. So why are we getting caught up in it? Yeah, that's just to yeah. naturalize capitalism as, as, any, as trans-historical, right? This is precisely mm-hmm. not the point of materialist analysis. All right, that does it for us today. New episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks wherever you get your podcasts. Also check us out on YouTube for videos and live streams. Before closing out today, we'd like to take a minute to thank some of the people who are supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you, and we are really grateful. Today's new patrons are Hugh Adams, Blake557, Retcon, Galen Doucette, Brett Nichols, Grant Nebergall, Maddie H., Caroline, James McCoy, Nicholas Green, Ethan, last-name, Thomas Ocaproti, um, Jeremy Greensmith, Philip Curl, TT392, Luke Mulaison, Eli Pine, N, uh, Michelle Lacroix, Brooke Stepp. Thank you all very much. If you too like what we're doing and want to support the show, please go to our website, leftofphilosophy.com, and click the support button. Patrons get access to exclusive content like locked episodes and bonus videos. You can also buy some What's Left of Philosophy merch from the store linked on our website. Follow us on Twitter at Left of Phil, and don't forget to leave us good reviews and comments on your podcast app. With that, thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks. Take care, everyone.